Yet again, my wife is proven right on a Sunday morning because we're doing a topical message this morning. Taking a little break from Genesis. Uh, not necessarily because I wanted to. I mean, I kind of wanted to, but this is uh, something that's been on my heart for a while and been reading through Hebrews again, and it's come up several times this week. Uh, but we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 6, specifically verse 12, but we're going to look at all of chapter 6 to kind of give us uh, some light there. But the title of the message this morning is through faith and patience, through faith and patience. And if you're listening online and it's still this week and it's a timely manner, I encourage you to go check out the resources page. There's a playlist there called Sundays and there's songs there every week uh, that we worship to before the message. And I think that somehow, uh, you know, as I put them together after doing the message that the Lord uh, really weaves together something great through the songs and what's being worshiped there and uh, or how we're worshiping the Lord there and then the message. So check that out on the resources page. But uh, turn to Hebrews chapter 11 if you haven't already. And this morning, obviously, it's not going to be an exhaustive study of this chapter. I thought it's probably going to be a shorter one. It's snowing out today. It'll probably be a short message and we'll get home. But I don't know. I got 10 pages of notes. So maybe I was just thinking out loud and we'll see how fast we get through it. Uh, again, not an exhaustive study, but we're really going to look at verse 12. And this verse has really stuck out to me this time through Hebrews uh, and really uh, hopefully stuck in my heart for the long term. Hopefully I'll remember it the next time uh, I need to go through something. Uh, but again, like I said, it came up several times this week and it came up with different people. Times I had to bring it up, times other people brought things up and this just matched up with what they were saying. Uh, different circumstances and I had been praying, Lord, do I really share this this Sunday? And I think that to me that was sort of the confirmation. Uh, you know, I'm, I was speaking to some friends this week in video chat, and I'm thankful that we're able to do that and that they make the time to do that with us, even though uh, we're hours apart. But they just, you know, they keep saying that they sense that God is something for them right around the corner, that God's been doing something and moving, and, and it's just, you know, they're, they're almost there. They're almost there. You know, they've been working hard for the past few years and making a lot of sacrifices to get out of student debt because they knew that it could hinder their service to the Lord, their freedom in Him, but also I think in a sense uh, to get in the way of the promise and the freedom that the promise might bring to them, or even to be in a place where they're able to receive the promise and better take care of a promise by being out of debt. And I think that that is amazing and something commendable and something we all should strive for as believers. And again, because the borrower is servant to the lender. And as we get ready to maybe buy a house, you know, the next couple of weeks, I'm going, man, that's, I'm going to be servant to this lender for 30 years. So what's the quickest way for me to get out of it? How can I pay it off quicker? <laughs> I don't know. But uh, Hebrews 6.12 says uh, that you be not slothful, but uh, followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And we're going to look at these couple of verses and uh, go through a couple of pages of introduction before we get to the chapter. But that word faith is pistis. It means a conviction of the truth of anything. In the New Testament, a conviction of belief respecting man's relationship to God and divine things, generally with the included idea of trust and holy fervor born of that faith and joined with it. It's relating to God, the conviction that God exists and he's the creator and ruler of all things. He's the provider and bestower of eternal salvation through Jesus, about Christ. Uh, the predominant idea, again, of trust or confidence, whether it's in God or Christ, springing from faith to the same. The word fidelity and the character of the one who can be relied on. So before we look at uh, chapter 6, let's turn to chapter 11 and just read 
uh, these verses here together to give us a little preface. And it says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by the elders obtained a good testimony, and by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. I'm just going to skip through this. By faith, Enoch was taken away, did not see death. Uh, by faith, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that God is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear and prepared an ark. By faith, Abraham obeyed. By faith, he dwelt in the land. He, uh, and this is important. In verse 10, it says, For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. That Abraham left, and there was no city for her to go to him, go to, but he knew by faith that he was headed towards an eternal city that no man can make, that God was making. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed. Um, uh, and it says that in verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, not having received them, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them embrace them and confess that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth that their faith showed them that they were headed somewhere totally different somewhere eternal and not temporal not based on the things they could see but the things that they could not see and yet their faith allowed them to see the things that were yet afar off it says verse 14 for those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland right and uh, truly if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out they would have had an opportunity to return that if Abraham began to lose faith, began to not trust in God, he might have looked back and said, you know what, Ur, the, Ur was pretty good. That area where I grew up from, maybe I'll just go back there and make a living and I'll just have a, a, a normal life there. And he would have had an opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. God has no reason to be ashamed of you if you put your faith in him. And I don't know that God would ever be truly ashamed of you in a sense. You know, if it's, I think that would be a whole nother study there. If you're trusting in him and you fail and fall, he's not ashamed of you. But man, if you don't put your faith in him, why didn't you? Why didn't you? There's a whole nother study. I want to go down that road. I'm not going to go down that road. But patience means patience, endurance, constancy, steadfastness, perseverance, forbearance, long-suffering, and slowness in avenging wrongs. Vengeance is mine, say the Lord, I will repay, right? Inherit, to receive a lot, or receive by a lot. You get it by a will or a testament. Uh, attained by a right of inheritance, to be an heir, to receive a portion, an allotted portion, to receive it as your own possession, and to become a partaker of and to obtain it. Promises. This word is announcement. It's promise or the act of promising. A promise given or to be given. A promised good or blessing. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. And this isn't a naming and claiming a message, but stick with me through this. Follow me through this. Follower and imitator. An imitator. First Corinthians 11, 1 in the King James says, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. And in the New King James, it says, Imitate me, just as I also imitate Christ. 
And forgive me if this gets a little hard here, but when we say that we are Christians, that word Christian actually came about in the Roman era. It means little Christ, that these people going around like little Christ, and it was actually a pejorative against them. Look at these little, they think they're like little Jesuses. Look at them. Why don't you just try and walk on water, little Jesus? Little Christian. So if we say that we're a little Christ, or even if we're trendy with the modern church, and we say that we're followers of Christ, so I'm, the word disciple somehow has become a bad word in the church, and you have to be a follower of Christ. And I get it. But if we say that we are, are we truly imitating him in faith? Are we truly imitating Paul? Could our lives of faith at all be confused with Jesus's? Okay, well, maybe not Jesus. What about Paul? Okay, maybe not Paul. How about Stephen? What about Peter? All right, Peter's a good one because he, he failed and floundered. But not after the Holy Spirit. Abraham's, Jeremiah's, Samuel's, David's, Noah's, Enoch's, Abel's. Abel's life was over pretty quick, and yet the Bible talks about him plenty of times. That he is a, a witness to us. He, his life to us speaks even though he's dead. That his faith speaks even though his mouth and his body have long since gone back to the elemental. And it will always be our own life in Christ in the sense that God has a story of faith for you that he's written out for you and I to walk out in this life. You know, Philippians 2.12 says, Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That this salvation, this faith that God has given you and I, is our responsibility to work out on our own. Yeah, we get advice. Yeah, we can look to others. And we have examples to follow. But when it comes down to it, your story of faith is the story God has given you. There's one Abel in the Bible. There's one Abraham. There's one Joseph. There's one Moses. There's one Daniel. There's one Peter. And far too often we rely on others' experiences to justify, rationalize, and explain our own. And with good intention. We, we reach out. We share what's going on in our lives. Others might share what's happened in theirs. And I think sometimes we come to that with the wrong eyes. We read into their story what we want to read into. Instead of taking it away and saying, let me imitate their faith and not their experience in my life. I remember being early on in the faith and trying to imitate Abraham and something that was going on in my life. Oh, I must just need to, to, pretend, to or pretend to sacrifice it and go sacrifice it. And then God will let me keep it. But that's not what God was trying to show me. Because in fact, their experience, although on the surface it may be seemingly the same, in faith could be completely contrary when it's taken in light of the promises God gives us and that faith that's required to get there. Don't just take your friend's story as the gospel for how you're supposed to act it out. We talk about God putting God in a box. Well, yeah, take it and listen to it and pray about it and see what God might show you through that. But just because they've gone through something doesn't necessarily mean that that's the way God's going to take you through it. And how do you know that they walked through it in faith? How do you know that they did the right thing in that? Because in light of that, aren't we promised things 
that are usually good. When someone promises you something, you know, it's a good thing. Otherwise, it's a threat. You know, if it's a bad thing, it's a threat. Well, I'm going to get you. So-and-so, that's a threat. That's not a promise. You know, no one would stick around for a promise of a bad thing. Right? Well, I promise you we'll go to Disney World next year. I'm not promising that, no way. <laughs> Some of my friends just got their hopes up. We're getting a raise. Right? We'll, we'll give you a raise. We just have to get through the season. And, and I'm in that season at work. And I believe that promise to an extent. And, I totally, and I'm fine with it. It's like, this is sometimes you go through hard things. And it's, sometimes you have to defer the reward until it's time for that reward to come due. Or maybe uh, you were a child or had a parent that promised you something when you were a child. Maybe they did or they didn't do it. Sometimes as parents, I think we say, oh, well, we'll do it later. We're making this promise that we should really just do right now. And then we don't keep that promise. And then all sorts of trouble comes out of that in life. But God is a good father. If you and I are imitators of Jesus, Jesus knew his dad was a good dad. Father, let them see. And like Jesus said, if we being evil know how to good good gifts to our children, if they ask for something, we don't give them a stone or a snake. How much more God and his promises? Because they're usually for something that literally would take a miracle to happen. When God promises you something, it's something that only God can do. It's something that no one else can do. Even Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos and all their cash and money and power couldn't accomplish it for you. And as election season comes up, remember that whatever they're promising you, God has something greater for you. God has greater health care for you. It's called resurrection. But perhaps that's why we don't have patience sometimes. Hear me out. Because perhaps we don't believe it will happen. It's too good to be true. Yeah, the Bible says it, but eh, it's not for me. But don't we want to have these promises come to pass in our life? Why would we not? We all want to be rich in some sense, right? We all want to have a nice life and good things. I mean, if you really think about it, you don't really want to be rich, especially with the Bible teaching about it. But we'd all love to have an easier life, I think. I mean, that's why we invented things. The Bible says the inventions come out of these things. The reason why air conditioning is because someone said, I'm sick of being hot. <laughs> I'm going to invent it. But who wouldn't want something good, amazing, astounding, and more than that, eternally significant happen in your life? Wouldn't you want to be spoken of like Abel, even if your life was cut short by murder, to have your life speak beyond the grave? I was watching this clip of uh, this father who one of his daughters was uh, killed in a school shooting. And he's saying, the reason, reason I do this is because I know she would want people to know. And what he's saying is not what the media likes. He's saying the complete opposite, that gun control isn't the issue. It's other things. School safety, morality. And he knows that his daughter would want that message preached, and that's why he gets up every day. And that's his motivation. Because if it's a good thing, wouldn't that promise of that good thing make you stick around through something not fun? Don't we do that as parents with kids? Like, look, like I'll take you to McDonald's later. Just be good at the store. You know, I don't know that we do that, but sincerely. I think we use promises for those reasons sometimes. 
Sort of the idea of the dangling carrot in front of the donkey or the animal to get them to keep walking, keep trudging along because that promise of that carrot hangs before them. And one day if they keep walking, they'll get it. And sometimes I think we think God's that way. He just dangles this carrot. And I think God, in some sense, might use it in our lives that way. But I think that's only the elementary reason. The fleshly reason just to stick around to get the promise. Yeah, I'm going to go to heaven. Things will be great. I'm not going to be in this body anymore. You know, I'm going to keep trudging along because I have no other option because this is in front of me. But truthfully, I think the bigger reason, I believe the bigger reason, is actually to see God work and know him better through his sufferings. If we're patient, it's because we're suffering. You're at the DMV. I mean, not here. The DMV is fantastic here. You're in, you're out. It's nice, friendly. Other places, you're in there for hours. You've got multiple numbers. It's like a deli, but you're the piece of meat that's being in there. Because with suffering, a lot of times that means waiting. And with waiting, it means patience. Because if we don't have patience, we're not going to wait, right? And this, these things will teach us something about Jesus and what he went through for us that when we eventually do get the promise, we'll be happy we got it, right? But because we had faith and patience, we'll be more joyous and fulfilled in knowing him in a way that never would have happened without the patience through that situation. And somehow in this fallen world, the only way to get to know the quote-unquote deeper things of God is through a bit of quote-unquote suffering because sometimes honestly with you and I in America is it really suffering or is it just about a temper tantrum impatience that we're having because I think about the believers in the rest of the world and I go I don't know that I could preach this message to them because I don't know suffering like they do Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 3, 7 through 11. He says, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Sometimes when we're waiting, we have to let things go by the wayside. Let things become lost to us as we wait that we could have had, but we waited for what God had, so we let them go. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law or works, right? But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And Paul says, I let all these things go that I may be made like Jesus and get to know him in the suffering because at the very end, if I hang on to this by faith and not by my works, I'll attain the resurrection. I'll have, in a sense, not earned, but gotten to the resurrection. But you have to die to be resurrected, right? If you're alive already, they're not resurrecting you. They might resuscitate you, but you have to be totally dead for a few days in the ground before you can be resurrected. And again, I want to try and read this whole chapter and touch on a few points because I think it helps put in a larger context and a larger story here that we might miss if we just focused on this one verse. So Hebrews 6. I'm going to take it in a couple, hopefully bite-sized chunks here. And Lord, again this morning, 
God, we do ask by faith that you would speak to us in your word and by your spirit that, Lord, in a sense, we don't even have to ask because we know you've already spoken and you are going to speak and you are speaking. God, we just want to be open to that and what you would say to us this morning. Bless all those who hear and may your word go forth. In Jesus' name, we love you, God. Amen. Therefore, 6 verse 1, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. I'm going to stop there for a second. He said, let us go on to be perf- to perfection. Like Paul says, if somehow I'm, I might attain the resurrection, right? That when we reach resurrection, that's when we'll be perfect. We're not perfect right now. We're growing. We're babies. We're infants when it comes to knowing things. We see dimly through a mirror, through a tinted glass, Paul says. We'll never be perfect here, but you know what? We can be sanctified over the course of it. But that sanctification is going to take some sort of death in your in my life. But why do we hang out in the elementary school of faith when it's about time that we have our master's degrees and more than that, have even started our own practices, right? If you're a doctor, if you've got the mental ability to do it and you want to do it, why are you hanging around in first aid class? You've been in first aid class for 20 years. Why have you not gone through and gotten your secondary and tertiary and master's degrees in medical school and even in that amount of time done your internship or whatever you do? And then even at a point where you've, you should be even be an experienced doctor to where you'd open up your own practice somewhere. You'd have your own team under you working, right? I think Paul says the same thing to us as Christians. In Hebrews 5.12, just a chapter earlier, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. You have come to need milk and not solid food. I have to question sometimes, why is it just milk is taught on Sundays? I get it. But I think sometimes there needs to be a heavier meat on Sundays so that people don't have an excuse. Well, all I got was milk. Well, there's more than that. There's a message there, and I don't want to harp on it. But ouch, you know, Paul again is saying, you've been around long enough to know it all by well. You know, you've been around long enough to know it all well enough, right? And so well enough that you could even be teaching others. You know, we're watching this show about a doctor and he's trying to find new people to work for him. And one of these guys is someone who has worked at a medical school for a long time. And so he knows everything, but he never went to school. And yet he knows as much as the doctors, but he, you know, he can't be the doctor. And I love that Paul lists here these, well, maybe not Paul in Hebrews, I believe the writer Hebrews could be Paul. But he lists the things that are elementary. The foundation of repentance from dead works and a faith towards God, doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this is a huge message in there and of itself. So forgive me for passing over it. But he lists these as elementary. This is the stuff my daughter might learn in first grade, second grade, third grade of the faith, right? And yet I think some of these things entire denominations still struggle with. 
and to claim the mastery of faith. And what did Jesus say? You, you claim to be a, a teacher of Israel. And you don't know this? You don't know that you must be born again? But here's the hard part. Verse 4, it says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. I didn't think I would get choked up at this, but I, I am. If they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be ruined. Remember the fig tree? Jesus went to go get some breakfast for the fig tree that one day. There were no figs on it. And he cursed it. And it withered up. The disciples were like, what just happened? How on earth did that just happen? Now, this is a hard part of Scripture, and there can be controversy over it, and I don't want to get into that this morning, but I do think it needs to be touched on, given what we're about to dig into. That if someone tastes the goodness of God and still decides to fall away, we can look at it this way. Have they truly tasted? Did they have real repentance? Were they just shallow or rocky soil like Jesus talks about? And again, I think the commentators and I might say that this passage can speak of someone who never really knew the Lord or just tested Him. But I don't think that's what the passage is saying. I don't think the words are saying that. I think this passage is warning us. It's not an allegory. It's a warning that yes, we can decide to follow Jesus Christ. We can repent. We can taste the good things of God by faith. We can begin to imitate Him. And we can't lose our salvation by accident. You know, I left my phone here one week and I couldn't find it. I lost my glasses here. You know, I had to get new glasses. But we can certainly choose to abandon our faith, to not like it, and turn our back on it. And that if someone does that, says and even has tasted Jesus and known how good he is, known how sweet it is to be forgiven and washed and cleansed and have a place to go to be forgiven of all your sin and have that fellowship with him and turn their back on him for the weak and beggarly elementary things of this world. It's because they've chosen something and someone else over him. And I'm no scholar but I've seen far too many people do this in my life. People close to me. People that I looked on as solid and faithful and looked up to and were examples to their peers. Came from great families. Knew the Lord. Went on missions trips. And I know they tasted God sincerely. It was evident. But I think sometimes that when that time to inherit the promise came in their life, they didn't stick along around enough to inherit it. Perhaps they tasted the bitter of sorrow, of a trial, of waiting, or just not getting what they want. Like that temp temper tantrum, right? And they stormed off like a little kid might do, or you, might, you and I might do in emotional heat. 
and they decided to taste something else when they didn't like what the Lord was allowing them to go through. And that's exactly when the enemy swoops in. And he offers them a taste of his wares, his fruit. And it tastes great in that moment of weakness, of trial and pain. Might even take your pain away. But we know what the end of that is. It's death. And when they've chosen that, it's impossible to repent again. When Adam and Eve ate the fruit in the garden, it was impossible for them to go back to the garden. They could no longer taste the fruit of the garden. They were kicked out by their own choice. And what did it take for them to get back? Jesus' death, right? But if we've tasted the death, the only answer there is to our sin and salvation and every problem in life, can we say it's not good enough? I don't want to stick around for this anymore. I'd rather just go back like in the Matrix and I know the steak is fake, but it tastes good. There's nothing left to turn to. There's no way to turn them back because they've already turned to it and left it. Now, I'm not saying they can never repent. I'm not saying that God can't get a hold of them. But what else is there for them? You show them the cross, they're like, we've been there. And you know what? I don't want it. So they have chosen it themselves. And I think as Christians, if we don't graduate from those elementary principles of faith, we're in grave danger of falling short of the kingdom of God especially in these last days, there's a great falling away, a great apostasy that happens before Jesus returns. And it's happening now. People are falling by the wayside, left and right. Prominent Christian teachers and preachers and worship leaders are saying, I don't want to believe this anymore. It's intolerant. It's bigotry. It's not true. Why? I think because they stopped taking God's word as God's word and perhaps... They got too spoiled in their faith. They had it too good and they forgot what real faith was. That it's not about some church or ministry. It's about dying to self and following Jesus and counting everything else as rubbish. And Satan comes in with things that is complete garbage and trash and death and sells it. And we buy it. But we know better. But that's a different message for a different time. And each one of us is, I don't stand here and preach this like I haven't fallen before or that I could never fall again. In some sense, that helps me to have fear. In other sense, it's something I need to watch out for knowing that I'm completely capable of it. Let's go on. Verse 9 says, But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Paul says, Yes, these things happen and these things do. But Paul's saying to the person listening, to the person I'm speaking to, the Hebrew, are you a Hebrew? Are you grafted in, believer, to this morning? We are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and you do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience 
inherit the promises. Paul says that these things accompany salvation, that you guys like, look, like these are heavy, hard things, but you know what? Be joyous because you guys have learned something else and you're ready for something else. Things that accompany salvation. That these quote-unquote signs will follow the believer. As a believer, we're not to follow signs. We're not to follow things. We're not to follow, oh, well, the sun came up this morning, so I'm going to follow the sun. That's where God wants me to go. Because if you truly accepted the Lord and seek to imitate Him, you're going to start seeing things happen in your life that have no other explanation, no natural explanation. And the sun came up this morning, yes, because the world spins around and that's what happens. But this happened in my life. And there's no reason why I should have this in my own strength. And as you come to see these things, you begin to look back on your life and God begins to show you the things that happened in your life before you even knew Him, before you bowed to Him. I go, well, there's no way this could have been anything other than God's providence and provision and grace on my life before I even trusted Him. Sometimes others might even be the first to notice it. You get saved, you feel like nothing's changing, and people look at it and say, I've noticed such a change in your life. And you go, really? You go, yeah, you were like this, and now you're like this. And I love that Paul says, for God is not unjust to forget your labor of love. And I think sometimes we fall away, or at least we fall short of inheriting God's promise, because we get weary. We've been laboring in love. And we haven't got that paycheck, so to speak, yet. Or maybe we're seeking a paycheck. And God's saying, this isn't even your job. The paycheck you're going to get from me is, is, is so much greater and so much different than the thing you're looking for. People don't like me. I preach all the time. That's not your paycheck. My kids are ungrateful. That's not your paycheck. I didn't get a raise at work. I got passed over. That's not your paycheck. This is something the Lord got me lately. Do all things without complaining or disputing. Your paycheck is that you're a light in a dark world. And that God would be not ashamed of you. Because we've been serving God hard. We've been loving others, suffering. But somehow in that time, perhaps we've forgotten to let God gas us back up. And that's kind of pejorative there. But we've forgotten to abide in Him. And even if we have abided in Him, somehow we haven't rested in that labor. Six days you shall work, and on the seventh, you'll rest. It's true. If I don't get a nap on Sunday, whoo, I'm done for the week. Galatians 6.9 says, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. All the prophets of the Old Testament, people didn't believe them left and right. But you know what? They're in heaven going, wow, look at all the reaping God is doing to the words that he had me speak. But the people thousands of years ago they listened to, but the people throughout the rest of history obeyed. Because the enemy loves to get us busy. And one place we never should be busy is at the feet of Jesus. I'm talking about Mary and Martha, and again in a message recently. Oh, listen to that if you haven't listened to it. Because when we're sitting at Jesus' feet, when we're resting... That's the first part of patience. We can't be patient if we haven't sat down and rested first. You know, I'm a type A if you kind of believe in that sort of thing. But I can be impatient because I like to get things done. 
come on, out of my way. I'm trying to get to work and all sorts of traffic. Thing, but I don't have that anymore. You know, let's just get the most efficient thing. You know, I remember working at a video store in high school and just always trying to find the most efficient way to do it. I have to do this job, right? I've got a lot of other things to do. Why am I going to take longer to do it? Why not figure out the most efficient, easiest way for me to do it and get it done? And we'll do it that way. Very type A. But wanting to get it done can really just be a sign of impatience in me because I'm not wanting to sit around, but I'm having to do something. I, I want to get this over with, so let me do it. So you might look on and say, he's a hard worker. But if you really look, you might just look on and say, oh, he's just impatient. And this can be good and bad. Because on the flip side, I can also be lazy and procrastinate because I don't want to do something. But again, it's because I'm being impatient because I know how long it'll take me to do the thing I don't want to do to get to do the thing I do want to do. It's going to take me five minutes to get up. I have to go get up and clean up. I just want to watch TV. But think about how this plays out far too often in our lives of faith. As I grab a drink here. We grow weary because we forget that the road of faith is supposed to be hard. It's supposed to be narrow. It's a promise to be lonely. I know I grow weary when I forget. I'm like, how's it hard? Ah, where are my friends? Oh, yeah. I think a friend texted me last night. We're in good company. Look at the guys of the Bible. A lot of them felt the same way. Where we grow weary because the road is hard, and we know that, and it's obvious to us, but we haven't rested. You know, when you go hiking, you gotta take a break every once in a while. Especially me, I don't like a heart attack. But we grow weary because we look at the length of the road sometimes instead of the destination. We get caught up in how many more miles it is to get there as opposed to when I get there, it's going to be awesome. Or we grow weary because we forget to look back and see how far we've come. You know, whenever I'm traveling, I like to see the distance and the time and wow, look how far we've come already. And I think that's the importance of communion. Because communion addresses all these things and more. We remember how hard the road was for Jesus and how much it took him to save us. We remember how lonely he was and how even he had to rest. Even God rested. We see the destination that he's taking us to, heaven. And we look back and see all that he's done in our life and all that he did. So believer, keep communion both in the eating and the drinking of the, the elements and remembering, but also just with God and remembering how far He's taken you and where He's taking you and that He's planning good things for you. And I love that Paul says, the diligence of the full assurance of hope until the end, because it takes diligence to make it to the end. It requires hope to get there. And if there's no hope at the end, why continue? Why do you think there's so much suicide? It's not because we're not aware of it. It's because we don't offer the real hope. And the real hope that we say, just like the people who have abandoned it, we've abandoned it as a society and say, there's no hope in that. There's no hope in Jesus. Find it somewhere else. There's nowhere else to find it. So what do you expect people to do? I don't want to be suicide aware. I don't want to be aware of the cross and the hope that gives because that's the only thing that has kept me from doing that in my past. It says, don't become sluggish. Imitate others 
who walk out their faith and receive the promises. When you get weary, you get start feeling lazy, look at others and say, well, look how much he carried on. Look how much he or she carried on in the Bible, in your life, and those around you. And those who haven't carried on say, well, just because they gave up doesn't mean I need to give up. I need to keep going that they might have an opportunity to come back. This is, isn't an even claiming message, like I said, but guess what? If God has promised you something, well, what, you don't think God has promised you something? There are 66 books full, literally full. The whole thing is a promise to you. We need our lives to imitate those that are in there. We don't need a beard or sandals or a great army to imitate the people in the Bible. We don't need to look like them, dress like them, talk their language. We just need faith and patience to simply believe God and wait. Hi, bud. Hey, bud. Because that's all it takes to inherit the promises of God. If you want to inherit the promises of God, two things you got to do. Believe Him and wait for Him to give it to you. And that the promise isn't too good to be true. Hebrews 11.6 Without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that God is and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. James talks about the man who doubts. He's tossed to and fro. He can't expect to receive the things of God. Why? Because he's doubting. Because if God gave it to him, he would just let it go and go the other way. And again, if we can't even believe the elementary stuff, the two plus two of the Christian faith, the overarching things and truths of the Bible that apply to everything, to all creation, all history, all people, it's going to be harder to believe the personal amazing stuff. If you don't believe that God created the world, well, why would you believe that God loves you? My son Jacob's fifth birthday is today. I can't believe that he's five. If I remember about 10 days ago, he asked, you know, we were talking about how many days it was. I said, it's 10 days away. He goes, it's such a long time. I'm like, I know it's gonna, it sounds like a long time, but it's gonna go by quick and you're gonna realize that. And we talked about it yesterday, like, wow, isn't it, didn't it feel quick? It's here already. But what does Jacob have to do to get the gifts? And he goes, open them. <laughs> and I go, yeah. But all he had to do 10 days ago was wait for those 10 days to pass. He could do anything he wanted for these past 10 days, and he pretty much has. He's played Legos, he's played Nintendo, he's played outside, he's run around, he's had lunch, he's had dinner, he's taken a bath. And today still was going to show up. The only way it wouldn't show up is if somehow he passed away. Or he went another way in his life and somehow I wasn't able to get him and give him his gifts, but he stuck around. I'm glad he did. Even if he did something wrong, I'd probably still give him a present. Maybe one last or wait, wait a day or so, I don't know. But he's still my son and it's his birthday and I love him and I want to bless him. And it's not about his performance, it's about who he is. He's my boy, I love him. My beloved Jacob David. But you know what I did? I didn't not remind him. Every day, multiple times a day, I'm saying, it's your birthday. How, how many days to your birthday? I kept reminding him that. I kept reminding him how excited I was to see him get his gifts and to play with them. And I can't wait until later when we get to open them and play with them and help him play with them. I can't wait to give him a big hug, see his smile that lights up a room, see him jump around and be excited. And I think somehow I'm evil, right? 
But that gives a glimpse of God and his promises to us. That he promises us and he reminds us of them, not to make us impatient, but because he's so excited for us to inherit them and to be there with us as we inherit them. And he promises us, not because he has to, I have to get my son a gift, I'm his dad. Oh, I can't believe I spent, I don't have the money for this. No, I'm like, you know what, well, let me spend a little bit more on me. I spend a little bit too much money on me, to be honest with you. But is it too much? No, it's my son. But not because God has to, or he's trying to make it up to us, or that there's something wrong with God, that, you know, when we promise, sometimes it shows there's something wrong. That's what the Bible says, let's your yes be yes and no be no. But I think God promises us because there's something wrong with us. And that's something wrong is unbelief. And hear me out here. Maybe I'm taking it a little too far. But I bet Abraham and Sarah, if they really believed God was who he is, the maker of all, he made the stars, right? They believe that. That he's the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And that they had a desire for a child in their life, right? And maybe if they had faith enough, they would have believed without even getting the promise. Why? Because Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. That God does promise us things, and that especially in a fallen world that is hard, is lonely, is tough, is tempting, but he promises us these things that we can learn to trust him at his word. That it's not that he's not trustworthy. It's not that it's not obvious that he's God and who he is, but because we're in a fallen world, because we're under sin without him, he gives us his word that we might trust him. And Psalm 32, 8 through 11 says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Because as we do trust him at his word, we should start to get to a point with his word that we know it's trustable, that we don't struggle with unbelief to the things he says in the word anymore, that because we've begun to believe even the elementary things of the word, We've now started to believe even the seemingly fantastic. You're telling me there's going to be a 1,200-mile cube that comes out of heaven as a new Jerusalem? You're telling me that God is going to be, yeah, this is what the Bible says, and it's going to be awesome and way cooler than Star Trek. I believe the fantastic things of God. Yes, he laid on him, and this boy came back to life. Yes, the sun stood still. Science can't explain it. I don't need them to explain it. The Bible tells me so. Oh, well, that's foolish. Okay. You can call me a fool, but the fool of his heart says there is, you know, says there is no God. So I've got an answer for you. I like having an answer for everything, but you know what? The Bible has an answer for everything. Because you know what? We begin to see the entire book is for all humanity collectively, right? But as you and I believe the Bible, we begin to see that it's also for us individually and personally. And as we begin to believe those things personally and individually, we begin to see that we don't always need a specific word for something, right? It's good to pray and seek a word about a decision you're doing or about things in life and get an answer from God. I'm not discounting that. I still rely on that. 
What I'm saying, because otherwise we'll get way off course, what I'm saying is that as we believe his word, sometimes it's just obvious what the right thing to do is. We see his eyes looking. You know, I'm starting to see the people in my life are in my life for a reason. And I almost don't even have to pray about how my relationship with them should play out because I go, it's obvious. God has brought this wonderful believer in my life or this wonderful unbeliever in my life, and it's obvious what the purpose is. To love them and let them, you know, a believer be involved in my life and speaking to my life. Because we begin to see his face. And as we see his face, we see his eyes. I was at a memorial service yesterday, and they had this recording of this pastor's wife who died four days before she died. And they asked her what she first saw in her husband, and she said his eyes. And we see God's eyes. He's guiding us by them. We don't need him to speak. He just guides us. It's kind of like with your spouse. You just get the look. It's usually not a good look. <laughs> Maybe for me. No, that's not the way it is. But sincerely, I don't Sometimes, do you really need God to tell you what to do? I don't know that we should. He's already said it. He's already done it. We've already read it. We know Him. We know He would just want us to serve that person. We're going to love them. Or to invite this person to church or ask this person's advice. Or believe this person. Because we already know what he's going to say. We already know what he's going to do. And I think sometimes we ask him because we don't believe it. Or we don't like it. Or we want him to tell us something different. You know, God will never make you do something. God will never make you wait. He'll always give you a way out of that temptation. But we're free to go anytime we want. He will not make us stay with him. He will pursue us, and he will give us opportunity, and he will try and correct us, but he will never make you do what he's promised for you and laid out for you in faith to walk out from before the foundations of the earth. Do you really believe that? God has planned something before the foundations of the earth. He said, you know what? I would love for them to be able to do this and experience this and know me this way. He did. That's what the Bible said. That's what the Bible says, guys. That he's already said it all. He's already done it all. He's already paid it all. He's already bought that promise for you, that inheritance for you. You just have to wait to unwrap it. Because he's our father who loves us totally and completely. And of course, he's going to give us the desires of our heart, which are far beyond even just our everyday needs. He says, I'm going to meet your everyday needs. Why do you worry about what you're going to eat or drink or wear? It's what the heathen worry about. I clothe the lilies of the field. Of course, I'm going to clothe you. And more than that, of course, I'm going to bless you with the things more than what you need. Because he is God. And nothing is impossible with him. The scripture says that. Nothing is impossible with God. I've been praying that this whole summer about trying to find a house. I'm like, God, you own every house out here. You could give me that $17 million mansion if you wanted to. You own it. You could put it on the owner's heart to come knock on our door and give it to us. Maybe that'll happen. You know, Lord, hurry up. I've got to close in a couple of days on this other house. But sincerely... God can work all this stuff out. And he has. I won't get into it for time today, but man, like the things the Lord has done to get us where we are, we didn't have to do anything for it. He just kept saying to wait and believe and don't settle for anything less than what I've given you as a desire in your heart. Because if we have the desire 
and the desire is from him, it's going to come to pass, guys. But we have to go through faith and patience. And if somehow we don't get it, if somehow this house closes and it doesn't work out, then you know what? We never needed it. And I tell you, then, you know what? Then maybe God will take the desire away and we'll be free of it. But I tell you that he gives us the desires of our hearts because it helps us see him. Because he is really the desire of our hearts. Paul says, I know how to be abased and abound. And with my kids, I see gods in ways I never would have saw him before. Especially because of how completely awful I was and the things I did before knowing him. That he's given me this desire in my heart to have kids and to love on kids. And I wish I could have 30 more kids. You know, uh, until I have to go to Walmart and need more carts. But this regularly reminds me of God's goodness and, and grace. That me, someone not deserving of children of all, in fact, the very opposite, would have four here on earth. I can't get over it. I can't contain it. I can't explain it. Other than that, yes, Jesus. He is my God. He is my Father, my best friend. He is the lover of my soul. The God of heaven and earth loves my soul. And you know what? I want you to know that He loves your soul. He loves you. He made you. And if somehow you and I don't get the things we want in life, our deepest desires, dreams, and hopes, even though I'm being patient and having faith in God for them, well then guess what? He'll take those desires away and show me they weren't His desires for me. And I'll see that the desire is so great it can only be fulfilled on the other side of this life by Him. And maybe I have a desire that is so amazingly beautiful from Him that only He can fulfill it in me. I wonder if Mary had a desire so great to have a baby and to see the Messiah come. And God said, guess what, Mary? I want to meet both those desires in you. That as much as she loved Joseph, she longed for God to be her husband even more. And He said, you know what, Mary? I'll give you the desires of your heart. There's nothing special about you apart from me, so to speak, but I'll give you those desires. And let's go on. I know we're getting real close to the end, but I want to get these last few verses. It says, For when God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater in an oath of confirmation for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, the immutability of the council, sorry, this is a tough legal document here, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that is said before us. Here we go. This is crux here. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become the high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. He says, surely there is no doubt. What God says, he will do. But also, it's because it's who God is. God is far beyond even perfection. Perfection doesn't even begin to come close to describe who the holy God of heaven is. There is no variation or shadow of turning in him, and we can trust his word. Why? Because it's who he is. It's not just something he says. It's not just a law he made. He is the word. 
He doesn't just do or promise or fulfill or perform miracles because he has to, because of an obligation like you or I might do, but because these things are the very being of who he actually is. 1 John 4, 8b says, For God is love. I can talk about the work raise. I believe, you know, I'll get a raise one of these days. Even the CEO talks to me about it. I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to boast if you if you work with me in here, but I'm saying like, you know, we all kind of get these things, but we've had a spending freeze. And I, you know, I believe it. In some sense, I, I doubt it a little bit, you know. But on the other sense, it's like I know they like me, but they don't love me like God does. So yeah, they don't. They don't. You know, it is what it is. It's just that's just life sometimes. And sometimes there's years of plenty, and sometimes there's not. But with God, knowing that He is love. We hold on through faith and patience. It's a lot easier. It's a lot more restful, a lot less stressful, a lot more hopeful. Why? Because God is love. And if God loves me and God promising this to me, then you know what? Surely I can hold on. Why would I not hang on for the very best thing he has for me? Because the very best thing he has for me is him. It's not a house. It's not a raise. It's not a spouse. As much as you are a fantastic blessing from the Lord and my wife. This is just the beginning. Because every time I receive something amazing from God, you know what? I don't want more of that thing. I want more of God. And even though the thing is good, God is greater. And I want to see the even bigger thing God is going to do next that I might see Him and know Him more and more and more and more. And this goes hand in hand with sanctification. You can't separate the two. And on top of that, for my next time waiting with patience and faith. I'm sitting around resting in the place God gave me last time by inheritance. He brought me something. I got to wait in this beautiful, wonderful house that I could never afford while God prepares another place for me that I could never figure out and attain in my own strength. While I waited in the house that He got me last time by faith and patience. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns everything. So if He can own everything, well, then why am I worried about it? He's going to work it out. And these are elementary, simple things that to me are uh, fantastic because I'm so small in the faith. But man, how much more does God have for you and I? Because it is impossible for God to lie that everything God says is true. This whole Bible, every weird thing in it is the truth. And there's not a possible way for him to lie. Even if he wanted to, he would never want to. And you know, I think our doubt is either that we don't believe that he said it. Somehow we think he's lying. Or that we think we're lying to ourselves. Well, God didn't say that. Or I didn't really read that. Or that's not what God told me. Or that someone else, like the enemy lied to us. Or we believe someone else. But we have an anchor for our soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus becoming high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. That this hope that we have to give, to give us strength to get through with patience and faith to obtain the promise. This hope is not a thing. It's Jesus himself. He is our hope. He is the one that we're tied to. He, like an anchor, tossed overboard, goes beneath the surface of the water that we can't see, is murky and deep and maybe even full of waves, goes down to the bottom, sinks in the sand, and holds us there. We don't see it, but there's a chain tied to it. That's the same thing with Jesus. He is tied to our hearts, and he is now... On the other side of heaven that we can't see, on the throne, immovable. 
and we are tied there. And all we have to do to weather the storm is remember that we're tied there and that he's reeling us in home to heaven. We're not anchored to this life. We are anchored to the next one. And when we lose hope, it's because we're, we've, we're thinking that we're anchored here. That our, or, I'm losing everything that I have and that I need. Why do you need it? You're going to heaven. You've got a greater city, a greater home, a greater inheritance, a greater family, and a greater eternity, and a greater kingdom. John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. The promises that God has for you are true. You have to seek Him for yourself. I can't always say that you're going to get what you want or that you're going to get it in this life even, but that what He does say to you is true, that He will never leave you nor forsake you. And sometimes when we're waiting, we feel like He's left us and forsaken us, but He's really just gone on ahead of us. Don't cling to me now, Mary. And then all you have to do to inherit heaven... All you have to do to get God's promises both now and in eternity is to get them through faith and patience. So God, this morning, this afternoon, whenever we're listening, whenever we're going through life, help us trust you and be anchored to you, the lover of our soul. So God, help us get through, help my friends and family and all those around us inherit everything you have for them. And those who have turned away, help them, God, let go of the things that anchor them in this life and Show them that it's rubbish even today and make them be disgusted with it. That they would turn around and run back to you, the author and finisher of their faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There is a vineyard of the Lord. There is a vineyard for our soul. With all our troubles left behind the door, we drink first light until.